Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Hello, my name's Neil Selwyn, and in this episode, I'm talking with Audrey Waters. Audrey is a legendary critical voice in the world of education and technology, so it's personally really exciting to catch up with her, I think, for the first time. Audrey's articles are widely read, she's highly cited, she gives rousing keynotes, writes books, and she conducts painstaking analysis of education markets and finance. And she does all of this whilst operating as an independent scholar, slash freelance journalist, slash gun for hire. So the excuse for catching up with Audrey is that she's got a new book out soon with MIT Press on the automation of education. But I was also really interested in finding out how she manages to operate as an independent scholar in the education and technology space, especially given the precarity of working as a university researcher at the moment. So first off, I asked Audrey how she would describe her own job. How would I describe? I mean, I would say first and foremost, I think of myself as a writer, um, but I do think of myself as a scholar and it's and as a journalist. I mean, it's important. I think all of all of those. I think that, um, you know, I'm I've been interested in education technology for um, I mean, since I was in graduate school, um, partially with sort of the compulsion um, in the the compulsion to to use the learning management system sort of got me thinking. And um, even before then, as an undergraduate, I got my degree via, at the time, distance ed. And so I've just had a lot of experiences that have made me think about um, education technology. And as I started, um, well, after I dropped out of graduate school and started looking for a new career, I wanted to write. And I wanted to write about education technology. Um, And I found that people, a lot of mainstream publications weren't really into it. Um, A lot of tech uh, publications weren't particularly into it either, into the education port. Um, So I started my own website and um, have really been covering, I think, covering education technology as a journalist would, writing about what's, what's new, what's happening. But then also, I think, taking some of the skills that I learned in, you know, in university and really trying to uncover the theory and the history of, um, of the industry and the practices as well. But your, your PhD was in folklore, was it? I have a master's degree in folklore. I was working on a PhD in comparative literature. Yeah. So for someone who has a kind of literary background, writing about technology and education and technology sounds quite dry. <laughs> you know, so for me, I think one of the one of the flaws of how um, we approach technology is that too many people, and I think that your work is sort of different from this as well. You approach this as a sociologist, but so many people approach technology as it's just about the tech, and so. Um, I find that, you know, when we're talking about education technology, people get so obsessed with that, with the product, um, that they really aren't thinking about the context in which um, it was built or funded or implemented or um, some of the other, to me, much more, much more interesting, interesting pieces. And so I feel yeah. like the tech in some ways is like a red herring, you know, um, or, or it's just something that we focus on that we, you know, that makes us not pay attention to the things that we really should be. 
who cares about the tech? And it's as interesting as you make it. Um, now, just to kind of rewind a little bit, you made that sound very simple. You set up a website, you began writing. I mean, a lot of PhDs are actually kind of going into this freelance way of writing. And I'm just really, really interested. How do you make it work? And how do you balance the day-to-day hustle of being freelance with the time that you need to think and write and be a scholar? I mean, I would say on one hand, I was in the right place at the right time. Um, when I started Hack Education in 2010, <laughs> I mean, I think it was sort of that moment where there was the rise of social media and I was able to get attention for my writing in ways that I think is um, can be really challenging now that there are just more people on Twitter, um, more uh, more people trying to, to do this kind of alternative um, alternative production. And so I feel fortunate that I started when I did and was able to build a reputation um, for myself uh, when I did. And I think that that's the, the challenging piece. And it's challenging also because you find yourself sort of having to use these platforms that are just really terrible. You know, I often think, oh, I wish I could, you know, maybe I'll del- delete my Facebook account. And I'm like, well, I'll delete my Facebook account after the book comes, you know, after I've done the promotions for the book. Um, Because it's, you know, you do have to do a lot of that kind of, that kind of hustle. Um, But I've been really fortunate. I have, I don't have advertising on my website. Um, I don't, I really try to keep the amount of data, uh, the, um, the data that's tracked on my website to zero. Um, it's important to me that um, that I respect people who visit my site um, rather than trying to sort of extract extract their data um, in order to somehow make money. I don't have sponsors. Um, I have people who support me via a Patreon, um, make donations that way. Um, and then I do a lot of speaking. And so really it's not, I wouldn't say my work as a freelance writer is, is typical um, because I do, I think most of the money that I make comes from speaking gigs, which I do write. I write them out. I put them on my website. So there is a writing component, but it's less about um, churning out a certain number of articles um, and getting paid per article, which um, the amount of money that writer you make writing online is so embarrassingly little. <laughs> I'm actually really interested in your experiences of being a critic of education and technology. I mean, your, tech, your, your take on education and technology is pretty ruthless. You call out the bullshit of that tech. Now, that does seem to go down well with some audiences. I mean, who seems to really connect with your work and what do you think they get out of it? You know, I think that one of the strange things about education technology, and this is historically, it's not just a recent phenomenon, is that um, so many people have, I think, who are promoters, who are advocates of, of education technology, have felt that their role was to be a cheerleader. And so whether it's getting computers in the classroom, you know, in the in the 80s or using um, um, mobile or the learning management system or whatever the tech rollout is, I think that a lot of people whose jobs it is to implement the technology have had to really perform as sort of advocates and rah, 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 and it's going to be great and it's going to make everything better, faster, more efficient, happier, better test scores, etc. And so there hasn't been a lot of pushback. Um, I think that what the pushback has looked like is, is sort of or has been talked about as is simply resistance to that technology. So for the people who want computers in the classroom, there's the pushback from the people who say no. 
And so I think that a lot of the way in which ed tech has been talked about hasn't been particularly sophisticated. Um, and I think that there is really um, just a huge need for us to be more more thoughtful um, because it isn't simply it, it isn't simply yes or no. Although I would say I certainly am on closer to the to the no side, um, but for reasons I think that are always worth hashing out. And so I think that people ha have been quite receptive to um, I think more. Um, for, for discussions about ed tech that aren't simply, here's the here's 30 great apps that you can start using in your classroom tomorrow, which is really the level of, um, really the level of sort of in intellectual engagement that so much, unfortunately, so much of ed tech has been about. And then these sort of wild promises too, the wild promises that you hear. But on the flip side, there's a lot of people who don't take well to having their work and their business criticized. I mean, who reacts to your work in a hostile manner? And, and why do you think they react in that way? Yeah, I, I have written a couple of blog posts and it's been a long time ago now that, that the response was shocking to me. It was particularly when I just started, um, I was, I wrote a piece that was critical of Codecademy, which was one of these learn, learn to code websites, because I thought I would try it out myself and it and it sucked. And I wrote a pretty critical piece about just the sort of absence of absence of any kind of um, understanding of pedagogy from the young men who made this who made this startup. And while most of the press, the tech press, was proclaiming them as revolutionary. Um, I said that it sucked and, um, I got, I got so much, um, hate mail, um, comments on my website threatening to, um, uh, rape and murder me. I actually took comments off my website, um, shortly afterwards because it just didn't seem, the feedback just wasn't, it just wasn't worth it, um, to, to have that, those kinds of comments. Um, and I think that there, I think that the, I think a lot of the reaction is is tied up in tied up with the um, machismo and bravado um, of young, mostly white men in the tech industry, um, who many of whom are think that they're doing the world a favor by venturing into education technology, right? We could be building, you know, we could be building algorithms to sell advertising, but instead we're fixing education, so we must be heroes. And I think that they're very, um, that they're, they presume that they are geniuses, you know, I mean, they've, you know, they've gone to Stanford or MIT, um, they're, and there's just something about the culture of tech of, um, that's, I think really fosters um, fosters this response, and I think a lot of it is mis deeply misogynist. But I mean, misogynist tech bros are everywhere. Is there anything specific about misogynist ed tech bros, or is it the same same shit, different bucket? I think it's largely the same shit, different bucket. But I do think that there is the belief that they have that they are really righteous, that they could be sort of making, they could be making a company or building a comp startup that's going to sell for a billion dollars. And instead, they're just making a company that they think is going to sell for a million dollars. So they're, you know, somehow they're, um, they're more ethical. Um, and just the audacity of someone to challenge uh, someone to challenge them. Yeah. 
And have you heard um, kind of misogynistic pushback from the education sectors? I wouldn't like to say that this is all a technology problem. I mean, is this a problem that's actually throughout education? You know, I think that the problem, I think that it's so interesting to think about how education technology works within institutions. Because um, even though, you know, in um, in K through 12 in the U.S., you know, this is a prof- teaching is a profession that's overwhelmingly female, right? So most of the people working in the classroom are women and white, white women at that. Um, higher education, it's it's different. Um, certainly more, more men um, as professors. Um, but I think that when you look at the people who staff, traditionally staff some of the technology, um, instructional technology, um, but also just IT in general, again, those tend to be, those tend to be men. And I think that white men. <laughs> And I do think that that colors a lot of how um, a lot of how this how um, they people respond to me. I think that there's assumptions, for example, that I don't know anything about tech. Um, there are assumptions that um, you know tech is something precious that really only a few wizards get to manipulate, and the rest of us should just sort of um, receive their receive their wisdom um, unquestioned. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the bits of pushback you get is that you're snarky. I actually don't see that as a bad thing. Um, so I'm quite interested how you make snark work for you um, when talking about education technology. You know, it's so funny because I think that, I mean, it's some—it's not something that I've sort of cultiva- cultivated. It really is sort of just my, my, my personality. And I have to say that as someone who I'm trying less now, I'm trying less to be less online. Um, I, I definitely... Um, I know full well that so much of what happens online on social media is just deeply toxic. And I think there's a new word that I've seen lately called doom scrolling. And I feel particularly in this moment with, you know, rising authoritarianism and the global pandemic (laughs) and police violence that I sit on Twitter and I'm just like, oh, my God, it's so it's so overwhelming. But I think as someone who's on, you know, online a lot, you just get exhausted. I think you get exhausted by um, all of it, um, particularly when sort of people come at you, say things at you, make assumptions that you don't know things. Um, you know, the, that Rebecca Solnit book, Men Explain Things to Me. It's like I've, you know, I think I'm a, I've established myself as someone who does know what they're talking about when it comes to ed tech. But um you know, day after day, strangers, men, will, you know, say, you know, hop into my mentions on Twitter to explain to me how education technology works, how technology works, how venture capitalism works, how education works, how the media works, etc. And it's just exhausting. And I feel like sometimes all I can do is, you know, I, I just snap back. <laughs> I just snap back. <laughs> but the best way perhaps to disconnect and, as you say, to slow down is to is to write a book and to read books. So, I mean, this moves us on to the book that's coming out soon, Teaching Machines, A History of the Automation of Education. I mean, what's the 30-second elevator pitch for the book? Uh, it's a book about the history of personalised learning and personalised learning via technology. And I think it's important um, for me to talk about the ways in which this is not something that Saul Khan invented, you know, in, um, with Khan Academy. This isn't something that just we can now, just now unlock because of the power of computers. This has really been a century-long project by education, um, educational psychologists, by business. 
And really, I think that's how we've ended up with our education technology today is this long history of teaching machines, of personalizing education through automation, which sounds incongruous, but <laughs> that's how it works. But it's the classic question of how did things come to be this way? Exactly, exactly. So let's go through a couple of the main characters in the book. Um, Sidney Pressey. Who is Sidney Pressey and why are we still talking about him in 2020? Bless his heart. Sidney Pressey was an Ohio State University education psychologist. And like many of um, the men, overwhelmingly men, working at the time in psychology, which was itself a fairly new field, right? Um, he had... He'd worked for, um, or he'd, um, his mentor in college at Harvard was Robert Yerkes, who of course helped develop the Army Alpha intelligence test that was administered to U.S. soldiers in World War One. It was really the first massive standardized testing project, and so I think it's important to to sort of think about how standardized testing has is really constitutive of this idea of personalizing and automating education. So Sidney Pressey made a lot of standardized tests. He was making a lot of money selling schools standardized testing in the 1920s. It was already a huge business. And he got this great idea of what if we made a machine that could grade the tests automatically or even better teach, the, teach students um, automatically. And so tries he made, he, he uh, first demoed it in 1924, his teaching machine at the American uh, Psychological Association annual meeting um, and tried very hard to um, bring it to market, to make it a business. But this little event called the Great Depression happened. And so Sidney, Sidney Pressey was not, not, terribly, for, not terribly lucky. Um, he stayed really involved in teaching machines of course, more famously, a few decades later, B.F. Skinner um, invented a teaching machine. And of course, B.F. Skinner became much more well-known and teaching machines are much more associated with, with Skinner. Yeah, I mean, Skinner's going to be much more familiar to most of our listeners. But I mean, what was he doing specifically in the mid-20th century that can be traced through to the ed tech of today? So Skinner, uh, Skinner is such a fascinating person and fascinating slash... Um, sort of terrifying person. I've spent the last couple of years sort of spending way too much time thinking about behaviorism, thinking about Skinner's influence. But I think it's, I think that he is truly the most influential person in the development of education technology. And I think other people would, li would like it to be someone like Seymour Papert. They'd like to say that education technology's origins are constructionist, but I, um, but I think that really they are behaviorists. And of course, Sidney Pressey was a behaviorist too. Most education psycho or most psychologists at the time were behaviorists. Um, that is, you know, to sort of study learning um, you studied behavior. And for Skinner, famously, he, um, he worked with uh, pigeons in order to do something called operant conditioning, which was sort of training pigeons by giving them rewards in order to elicit certain behaviors from them. So the pigeons learned through rewards. And Skinner had this brilliant idea of what if we build a machine that offers rewards to students so that we can shape their behavior just like we shape the behavior of pigeons. 
Um, and so in the 1950s, he also tried to commercialize a, a teaching machine project, a product that was, he tried to sell it to IBM, tried to get a different manufacturer to make it. And for some time in the 60s, it was an incredibly popular idea. Um, door-to-door -door encyclopedia salesmen sold teaching machines as well. But that's very, it really is foundational on the Skinner notion of operant conditioning, rewards for behavior, shaping behavior, um, shaping behavior through, through machines. And I think we, we see that in tech, right? We don't just see that in ed tech, um, but we see that in tech as well, right? So um, uh, Shoshana Zuboff wrote the book Surveillance Capitalism a year or two ago, and really that was her argument was that sort of behavioral engineering a la B.F. Skinner is really fundamental to, to how technologies like Facebook and Google, not just the education technologies that we use. Yeah, but it, it can be couched in terms of behavioral economics and nudging people. Mm -hmm. As you say, it's fundamentally about getting individuals to make the right decisions and do the right things. Now, yes, the, uh, right, the right decisions with air quotes, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> now, I mean, one of the things you mentioned there about Skinner was him kind of cozying up with IBM. And I mean, one of the other themes of the book is when corporations get involved in educational technology. So, I mean, how did that work out in the mid-20th century? I don't remember IBM's teaching machines kind of revolutionizing schools. <laughs> so the things, you know, working on this book that was so interesting to me is we hear these stories and in fact, Skinner and Pressy told these stories too, that the reason that teaching machines weren't successful is that teachers were Luddites. The teachers didn't want them, that schools refused to change. I mean, this story, we hear it today, we hear it all the time, that education technology fails um, because of teachers. Um, and, but it's really much more. Um, it's really much more of an interesting story, and of course, a lot of businesses were also were so instrumental in sort of stymieing and um, and undermining um, because they had. I think they had. I mean, obviously, they still do today. They had just a different set of priorities um, than did you know two professors, right? A, you know, a, a professor from Harvard, a professor from Ohio State University thought that they had created um, a science, that they had a science and that science would have a technology and that technology, that science informed technology would improve education. And corporations were like, can I sell, you know, can I sell a million of these? Yes, no. Um, and I think that they were both, both Pressy and Skinner were really adamant that their that their machines were um, that their machines were scientific. They were incredibly controlling and were not willing to sort of hand it off to a manufacturer. Um, and so they were. I mean, they just were sort of the biggest pains in the ass. I think for these companies for these companies to work with because um, they were just so uh, they were just so adamant that the machines looked a certain way and functioned a certain way because otherwise they weren't sort of scientifically valid. In terms of big tech involvement in public education in the 2020s, then, I mean, where have Google and Microsoft gone gone right? What's what's changed now to make the kind of the corporation the dominant partner in all of this? Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that there are a number of reasons. I mean, I think that some of it just has to do with um, this this idea that's been that has been going on for a long time, that this is a huge market, that there's a huge market opportunity. And there were stories about this in the 1960s in, in which, you know, people crowed that, you know, that 
about how, you know, about the, the amazing opportunity that this was to, um, to make it just a ton of money off of the education market. I think that, I think that what we've seen in the meantime as well, though, is a lot of shift of power and, of course, money from public institutions into corporate into corporations, and so I do think that the rise of the rise of a lot of these um, companies in education is deeply intertwined with sort of a, with sort of neoliberalism, right? Because I think that um, rather than schools, universities, or school districts sort of building things internally themselves, the new motivation is always sort of is always profit, and I think that the you know the pressures to turn outside to um, for-profit companies, to vendors, to be able to supply things rather than building capacity um, internally is just incredibly powerful. And I think it's hard to, I don't think that you can sort of separate the rise of the computer in the classroom from, from, these, other, from these other trends as well. And I think that that's what's, you know, you asked me about my work earlier, I think that that's what's so important to, to always remember is, again, it's not just the tech, it's the it's the historical context. It's the um, the other the political context in which these things happen. Well, I was going to say it's great that you mentioned the Great Depression, but I mean, in this period, I'm thinking about the Cold War, the space race, Vietnam, civil rights. I mean, how was the rise and fall of teaching machines entwined with these broader kind of societal, political, cultural shifts? So this was one of the things that. Um, one of the reasons why I found myself sort of spending so much time with, with Skinner in particular, because of course Skinner, I would say, was probably the most well-known public intellectual, certainly the best-known psychologist um, in in the U.S. globally, had a huge reputation. I mean, he was he wrote a bunch of academic articles, sure, but he was also writing for the popular press. He was, a, you know, a guest on some of the nightly chat shows. He was on television quite a bit. People knew who Skinner, who Skinner was. And I think that he, um, for a while, following, you know, following World War II, I think that Americans were really committed to sort of gadgetizing their world. And his ideas about sort of using technology for child rearing, using technology in education, they were somewhat controversial, but they really did sort of, they were really part of the whole sort of gestalt of what was, what Americans thought the future was going to be like. The future was inevitably going to be more technological, more machines doing things um, in the kitchen, in the classroom, as Skinner would say, you know, if you can, if you can automate the kitchen, you can automate the classroom. So again, sort of very gendered, very gendered expectations for a long time in ed tech. But then, of course, I think as Skinner, um, and Skinner wrote a novel, um, like many academics who try their hand at writing novels, it's not great, and it's called Walden Two. Um, about a whole society that was sort of engineered with his behavior, uh, designed with his behavioral engineering ideas. Um, and then he wrote, and that was published a, um, very early in his career, before he was famous, but it, because it became quite popular in the 1960s. Um, and then he wrote a book um, that came out in the 1971, I believe, um, Beyond Freedom and Dignity, in which he talked about the ways in which freedom and dignity, free will, were not real. Um, and that um, it was quite a shocking, quite a, quite a shocking argument. And I think it was a lot of people started to sort of 
maybe ask more questions about about Skinner. But at the same time, you ask about the civil rights. You know, there are the other things going on. There was, um, in the 1960s, um, in the 1963, um, the Mississippi Freedom Summer, a lot of activists, SNCC activists, wanted to organize people in Mississippi, um, black folks in Mississippi, to do literacy, uh, with literacy campaigns so that they could gain the right to vote. Um, Because, of course, uh, Mississippi had um, egregiously racist policies um, blocking black people from voting, um, literacy tests at the polls. So they did a campaign for literacy, and they thought one of the the leaders of SNCC, um, Robert Moses, thought maybe we should, um, maybe we'll use teaching machines. He was a psycho, he had been a student of some of the psychologists at Hamilton College, um, actually where Skinner had um, actually graduated himself. Um, and, and he thought that it would, might be an efficient way to, to help get people up to speed, um, adults in Mississippi up to speed with literacy. But the programmed instruction, the kind of, the way in which the teaching machines work, works, ran headfirst into beliefs about freedom beliefs about agency and pedagogy and the other kinds of things that some of these activists were doing, including the freedom schools. And so you can sort of see the conflict in the 1960s. People, um, this was before Paulo Freire's work was translated um, into English, but um, people who started to see that education was absolutely needed to be a practice of freedom um, versus someone like Skinner, who was like, education should be a practice of engineering. Um, and those two really started to clash in the 1960s. And you could sort of see the students, um, student movements really start to resist not just the teaching machines, the idea of programmed instruction, but all of the other machines that they felt were dominating their lives as well, right? IBM, Mario Savio's famous speech on the steps of Sproul Hall about, you know, throwing your bodies against the gears and the, and the machines, this idea that that life was becoming more and more mechanized, more and more standardized, more and more automated. And so I think a lot of, a lot of activists in the 60s really rejected, um, student, students um, really rejected the vision that Skinner had for education. So history tells us that EdTech has politics, that EdTech is ideological. I mean, clearly we need a historical approach to EdTech, but I mean, how do you get education and technology audiences to engage with this history? I mean, education and technology seem so relentlessly fixated on either the present or the near future. No one really wants to look back and talk about this stuff. They don't. And I think that what's frustrating is that at the same time that they don't, they have these pat stories about the past that always get invoked, right? That education hasn't changed in hundreds of years. Um, You hear that one a lot, that that education, um, that we have an industrial model of education, um, that we have a Prussian model of education. So they do cherry pick from history often, incorrectly, um, in order to make arguments that now is the moment for change. Um, and so that's why I, I really wanted to write um, a book that looked at the people who were making those very same article or arguments 100 years ago, um, that education hasn't changed. Well, they didn't say hundreds of years, um, they, decades, they said. But, um, but this idea that education is stagnant, um, static, unchanging. These are, you know, you, you hear... Um, tech folks say this, but you hear the Secretary of Education in the U.S. She says this too. It's a pretty, it's a pretty common story, and so I wanted to be able to tell 
fill in the blanks um, in my book with, with more context. Um, and I also wanted to tell a story that wasn't about computers. I wanted to say, my book actually doesn't talk about computers. Um, I mean, maybe I mentioned them in the conclusion, but like, it's not a book about computing. I wanted to make it very clear that these ideas, personalized learning um, and individualized instruction through technology are, are really old. Um, and that's worth, you know, that's worth thinking about too. So despite the idea that everything's on the internet these days and you just have to go to a computer to find things out, you actually did quite a, a lot of proper old school archival research for this book. I mean, what research did you do and was it worth the effort? Um, I did. I went to Sydney Pressey's papers, which were, are at Ohio State, um, B.F. Skinner's papers, which are at Harvard. Um, I went to the Educational Testing Service in New Jersey um, to get a person named Ben Woods' papers. He was, um, he was actually uh, helped, worked with, he was successful working with IBM in developing a test scoring machine. So you said you didn't know about IBM's teaching machine. They never built one, but they did build a test scoring machine. And again, sort of this close, this close, um, this close proximity between standardized testing and the rise of ed tech was something I really wanted to talk about as well. So yeah, I did a lot of archival work. It was great. Um, it, I, I loved it. I mean, I, it was it was fascinating. It was fascinating to go through the letters, the correspondence um, that many of these scholars wrote to one another. Right. So B.S. Skinner was writing letters to Sidney Pressey. Sidney Pressey was writing letters to Ben Wood. They would get um, Skinner in particular would get letters from all sorts of people. Um, so people. Um, um, people that you wouldn't expect um, were correspondents. And of course, it was just, you know, thinking again about our, our contemporary practices um, of sort of what is it, what is a, what is the archival, what will the archival work look like, you know, a century from now? Um, uh, and what, what, I mean, what efforts, what efforts do we want to make in retaining stuff? I've become a big deleter. <laughs> um, yeah. And so it's, it's, it's you know it's worth thinking about what what do you do with what do you do with your email do you delete them or or do you save them for you know in the hopes that 100 years from now someone's going to want to write a story about I, I was just thinking that as you were explaining that i mean the, the idea of kind of putting all my correspondence in a box and locking it in a vault is just not going to happen so what's being lost now and it is really really interesting question and also i mean to help write the book you actually also bought an original machine from ebay to inspire you so i mean how did the physical presence of that machine actually influence your writing I mean, for me, it was, you know, you, you read these, you read the correspondence of someone like Skinner and Pressey, who were so excited and so enthusiastic that this was going to be, um, and you hear this, you hear this sort of rhetoric today, students are going to love this, they're going to be amazed by it. Um, and, you know, I think for maybe 30 seconds, students are amazed by it, even today. But anyone, any student who's done, a, you know, Khan Academy exercises, or even the fanciest, jazziest, snazziest iPad app to learn fractions knows that after a while, it's just not that intriguing. It's still fractions, you know, it's still a worksheet. It's just not fun. And so I wanted to, I wanted to actually use one, see what it was like. Um, and I was, um, this is just the process of sort of going through this, the, the, the programmed instruction against Skinner was really adamant, um, Skinner was really adamant that you take 
content down to the smallest possible objects. Of course, tech thinks you do this today now too. Take it down to the smallest possible content object. And then because you only want to reward positive behavior, you want to make it so that students don't make any mistakes. Mistakes are aversive. So you want this sort of positive reinforcement. So going through these on the teaching machine is so laborious. I mean, I thought that I thought I would never make it through MOOC content, but like the idea, I would much rather go through an MIT class on electrical engineering than the teaching machine was, it was pretty dull. It was, it was incredibly dull. I mean, academics talk a lot now about the affect and the kind of emotion of engaging with these things. And that's, you're not going to get that unless you actually do it. That's really, really interesting. I mean, finally, you said you didn't want the book to be an angry book. You wanted it to be an interesting and honest one. How did that work out? Um, it was funny, actually. The, I think I turned in my first draft and my editors at MIT Press, it wasn't what they were expecting. I think they were expecting an angry book. Um, and I And I think that they were... Surprised. I think a lot of people actually who know my work are probably going to be a little bit surprised at what the book is. Um, the, uh, I mean, it's a story. It's it's a it's a story. It's not a book of analysis. Um, although, I think as as one does with the sort of genre of nonfiction, um, there is an introduction and a conclusion, and those contain <laughs> analysis. Don't worry, but. Um, but yeah, I wanted to tell, I wanted to show that there was a really interesting history, a really interesting history here. And I feel like in some ways, EdTech is sort of the worst for not knowing its history, the worst for not knowing the, the theoretical underpinnings, um, the worst for not really thinking about, um, thinking about itself as um, um, not simply this amazing new innovative practice, but something that people have been doing for a very long time. And, and so... I wanted to sort of fill in, fill in some of fill in some of those gaps with what I think is really an interesting story. I mean, and, and B.F. Skinner is, if nothing else, um, an incredibly interesting person. Yeah, so it's not dull. <laughs> it's not. No, no, no. It's not dull. And finally, finally, I mean, this is a terrible question to ask an author, but I mean, what's the next book going to be about? So the next book is actually going to be about the the history of surveillance technology in childhood. Um, I'm always fascinated by these by these sort of um, inventions like the teaching machine. You know, Skinner said famously that he went to his daughter's fourth grade classroom and he saw how inefficient it was, so he went home and he built a teaching machine. And I was fascinated to learn the story of the first baby monitor, um, which was, um, again, built a very long time ago, but following the, the very well-known kidnapping of, um, of the Lindbergh baby. And so this idea of surveillance and fear um, leading someone to sort of um, to, to, to build a product, but that I mean, there, were just, there were just not a lot of kidnappings. It wasn't really a huge issue. And so you had to sort of create these narratives that our children are in danger. And so we need to, we need to buy these monitors because our children are in danger. And I think we see that. I mean, we've just seen that in all of the iterations of the baby monitor, right? In the 80s, when Fisher Price made a fancier baby monitor, it was all about um, p parents being able to see if the if the um, if the babysitter or nanny was hurting their children. And so, there's all of these fears I think that we cultivate, or we <laughs> um, businesses in particular cultivate, in order to sort of make us feel as though these technologies are essential. 
And so surveillance technology, particularly now, I think is one that is really being pushed, that we must surveil children, we must surveil students um, for their own protection, right? For their own protection, for their own good. So that's what the next book's going to be about. So men solving problems with technology. Exactly. Exactly. Thanks ever so much for taking the time to talk about everything, Audrey. It's been fascinating to talk. So go out and buy the book. Yes. Get involved with the Patreon account. And yeah, uh, hopefully I'll see you face to face in 2021.